Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 57, Mission La Purissima Concepcion, California. For the past 200 years, ever since the Spanish Empire stopped being an active force in the life and politics of the region, the California mission system has inspired controversy, romance, intrigue, and a lot of confusion in my fellow Californians. Prompted by both British interests in Western North America and Russian incursions into the West Coast, in the 18th century, the Spanish government decided to begin colonizing Alta California, or as we now call it, the State of California, all of them falling within a relatively short distance from the coast. A smaller number of presidios, or military forts, were established to provide a military presence in support of the missions. Though they began as religious colonies with a military presence, they would become a political and economic force in Spanish and later Mexican California before they were either abandoned or just became regional churches following the secularization of the missions in the 1830s. For a brief time, I lived a few miles from Mission La Purisima Concepcion, which is just outside of the town of Lompoc near Vandenberg Air Force Base. I spent many afternoons at the mission, enjoying walks through the open land as well as wandering in and out of its various buildings. The majority of the people brought into the missions as neophytes, that is, the people brought in to be converted and made subjects of Spain, were from the surrounding Chumash population. At the time, I was studying the archaeology and anthropology of native California, so it made sense for me to visit places like the mission. And, of course, as my visits became more frequent, I began to hear rumors of ghosts who stalked the grounds. Unsurprisingly, many stories claim that the ghosts are present due to the amount of death and misery that occurred within the missions. Some, however, seem to indicate that the spirits remain due to the dedication of the priests to their religious mission. We will discuss this dichotomy in the commentary later in the episode. Still other spirits said to haunt the mission seem to come straight out of a horror movie. Some visitors describe a sense of gloominess, sadness, or even physical pressure upon entering the mission grounds. Stories hold that the spirits of Spanish soldiers and Chumash people can be seen on the mission grounds at night, going about their business as if they were still alive and it was daytime. These spirits are said to be transparent and pale and do not acknowledge anyone around them. They go through their routines as if they are simply reruns from life. Even during the day, there may be some spirits repeating their actions from life. Supposedly, you can sometimes hear the sound of a mass coming from within the chapel, even when the chapel is empty. Or at least one anonymous online commenter at Weird California has claimed that this is the case. More on anonymous online comments in a bit. The sound of masses aside, others report hearing voices and singing from unknown and unseen sources. The sounds of hoofbeats from unseen horses are also reported. Father Pieris arrived at La Purissima in 1804, was in charge of the mission until 1819, and was the president of the entire California mission system between 1815 and 1819. He died in 1823 and was buried in the mission chapel. 
he is said to still be present on the grounds. His spirit, garbed in a white priest's robes, has been reported walking along the walkways outside of the main building, within his quarters, where the sheets of the bed often end up being moved, and within the chapel itself. The spirit of Pieris has also been blamed for knocking one unlucky guitarist's instrument out of tune every time the musician walked near his grave. And one young woman visiting the chapel said that she had a sense that two priests, both buried there, were still angry with each other after 200 years. I assume that one of these priests was Pieris. What's more, Father Pieris kept greyhounds, and these dogs are often seen on the walkways or walking between the mission proper and the long-since-decayed wine storage building. Another named ghost is said to appear in the kitchen. Allegedly, this is the spirit of Don Vincente, a man who was murdered on the mission grounds in 1820. Another phantom sound often reported is that of flutes. Nearly every source I consulted for this episode mentions the flutes and attributes this sound to the importance of flutes in Chumash rituals and traditions. While that is true enough, it should be noted that the flutes used by the Chumash would have been made out of either animal long bones, and such bone flutes are often recovered from local archaeological sites, or from plant materials such as wood and reeds. The point is, they would have sounded different than a modern metal flute. Still, people claim to hear their sound when visiting the mission, despite nobody with such an instrument being present. In and around the main building, the chapel, people have reported seeing a monk walking the halls, as well as phantom monks walking inside the building. Now, I have to assume that they mean the priests, as the Franciscans who ran the Californian missions typically wore robes that look like what many people think of as a stereotypical monk's robe, and also because the missions were not monasteries. A former ranger, Steve Schuller jones described one remarkable-looking spirit that he encountered. As quoted in a local newspaper, quote, I saw Ben Franklin in drag in the captain's quarters in the room with the canopy in the residence building. He was sitting on the edge of the bed in a nightshirt and glasses swinging his legs. I don't know that it was Ben Franklin in drag, but that's what it looked like. Several people have seen him since. Sounds like an officer in common 19th century nightclothes, but I suppose that Ben Franklin in drag catches the ear more than some old soldier in pajamas. Cold spots and feelings of being watched are common, as are the sounds of voices. Some people have claimed that energy vortexes, often claimed, never explained, are found within the chapel. One former employee reported that his granddaughter heard death chants while visiting him one day and has ever since refused to return to the park. Outside of the mission's buildings, mysterious lights have been reported in the cemetery, as have voices and other sounds. Some people claim to have seen shadows moving at night. Strange sounds are often reported on the grounds. Perhaps most disturbing is something that may be a spirit, a demon, or just evil humans. You see, while it's not discussed with outsiders, the people living in the nearby town of Lompoc say that the priests who still use the church for services have fallen away from Catholicism and into a strange and dangerous cult. Some nighttime visitors have reported seeing hooded figures in black robes moving among the mission buildings, and some have even been chased by them. Other visitors report hearing chanting and seeing flames from bonfires in the dead of night. As the stories go, after secularization, a number of the priests fell into the worship of an entity known as the Tri-Faced God, who demanded that the priests mutilate themselves and engage in grisly experiments that resulted in the mutilation and death of others. 
In the first part of the 19th century, these priests used the Chumash neophytes in their blasphemous rites, but the cult has persisted to this day and now makes use of transient members of the Lompoc population, whether vagrants or people coming in to work short-term as contractors, to ensure that their worship does not draw attention. Whether the black-clad hooded figures are living cult members, spirits of deceased members, or something more sinister is yet open to question. Before I end this, I would like to mention something described by the late paranormal investigator Richard Sennett. While visiting the mission, he saw the following, quote, They were small in stature, almost the size of children. They were kneeling on the floor. They were wearing rags, and one, I recall, had a blanket around him. They had long hair that was dirty and stringy that hung down to their shoulders. One of the three, the one closest to me, turned and looked at me. I saw he had scars and red sores on his face. There's a pleading quality in his expression. I also saw behind them a bright mural painted on the wall. It was red, yellow, and green, depicting some sort of decorative vase and swags of flowers. Then, as quickly as it came, the whole thing vanished, and I was once again left in the church with a sick feeling in my stomach. I was positive I saw Native Americans, but my vision was nothing like the paintings and depictions of the happy, white-clad mission converts found at the mission and in books. The three I saw were starving, sick, dirty, and miserable. The mural I saw was almost garish and nothing like the paintings that now adorn the restored walls. What had I seen? It didn't last long, just a few seconds, but what I saw was detailed and stark. I researched the event and found that there were times in the 1820s when the natives were starved and epidemics of smallpox did take many lives. Once there was even a revolt that took many Native American lives and Spanish as well. In the blog entry in which he describes this vision, Sinnott states that he believes that he didn't see a ghost, but rather peered directly into the past. I will have more to say on that in the commentary, but I thought it was a good way to end this section because it illustrates an important point. When we visit historic sites, we are looking into bits of the past, but only seeing a small amount. We have to interpret what we see, and we may not always interpret it correctly. In the last 56 episodes of this podcast, I have found that we often do the same when we look at ghosts. Commentary I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the history of Mission La Parisima for two reasons. The first is that this history is relevant for discussing why the stories that have been attached to the mission have continued to thrive. The other is that the stories that surround La Parisima, as well as the striking lack of stories about certain types of events, are embedded in and reinforce commonly held views of mission life. But these views are not entirely consistent with the historical record. La Parisma is one of the places where ghost stories reflect how we as a culture view the past, and having a better understanding of the actual past is valuable in understanding what the stories are highlighting and also what they are hiding. So I will get back to the ghost stories, but please bear with me for a bit while I talk about the mission itself. La Parisima Concepcion State Park exists at the second location of Mission La Parisima. The first mission was founded in 1787 
at a location that now resides within the central portion of the city of Lompoc. The mission was damaged in an earthquake in 1812, and the decision was made to move the mission several miles to the north, and the location where the restored buildings currently stand. As an aside, if you go looking for information on La Parisma online, there's a photo that you will find that purports to show the original mission in a decayed state. I have visited the original location, and this photo does not show it or anything that looks vaguely like it, and it is clearly not even in the same landscape as the original mission. Like other missions, life at La Parisima changed in a number of ways during the War of Mexican Independence between 1810 and 1821. The lack of support from the Spanish government led to supply shortages, which required more flexibility and creativity on the part of priests, soldiers, and the native Californians at the missions. Although the missions, as Spanish outposts, were forbidden from trade with the Russian outpost at Fort Ross or the British traders who would sometimes come through, a black market thrived during the war, allowing this illicit trade to occur. In addition, traditional hunting and gathering had never been halted. Although mission authorities demanded a focus on the agricultural and pastoral activities of the mission, hunting and gathering were allowed and in some places were encouraged as ways to supplement the food supplies. It seems reasonable to assume that this activity likewise became more important during the war. The mission also played a significant role in the Chumash Revolt of 1824. La Parisma is near the western end of the Santa Inez Valley. Mission Santa Inez is at the eastern end. And to the south, on the other side of the Santa Inez Mountains, in the modern city of Santa Barbara, is Mission Santa Barbara. All three are in the modern county of Santa Barbara. The immediate cause of the uprising is unclear. And when I poured through documents on this subject as a graduate student, I found that there are multiple accounts that state, with certainty, that it was sparked by the beating of a young boy by a soldier. Or, again, with complete certainty, it was punishments meted out to a Chumash man by either soldiers or priests. Or, and again, total certainty, it began when rumors circulated that the mission authorities were planning to execute Chumash men. In truth, there may have been elements of all of these things, or it may have been something else. Regardless, like most historic revolts, uprising, and political riots, the actual causes were long-term and had been boiling for some time. Under Spanish and later Mexican rule, the native peoples of the Americas faced a range of harsh mistreatments ranging from violence, including murder, at the hands of Spanish colonists, to frequent rapes, to being put into outright slavery. Much of the mistreatment of native peoples that occurred in the Spanish colonies was illegal under Spanish law, and this fact became known to many of the native people under Spanish rule. However, there were surprisingly few examples of Spanish colonists being held accountable for their actions. The new Mexican government officially proclaimed in its Declaration of Independence to, and I quote, abolish all distinctions amongst Europeans, Africans, and Indians. In truth, though, what was proclaimed didn't match what actually occurred. Moreover, while the missions had initially taken in only those who volunteered for conversion, by the turn of the 19th century, many of the native population at the missions had been captured and forcibly converted. Even those who were volunteers often were surprised to find that they were not allowed to leave once they had entered the missions. Freedom of movement, while not as restricted as many modern popular depictions indicate, was significantly more restricted than it had been in pre-Spanish California. The mission system had created a hotbed of injustice, pain, and frustration, and it was going to explode. In 1824, the fuse was lit, 
even if we don't know what the cause of that fuse being lit was. The 1824 revolt is a large and complex topic and could easily be an entire podcast series on its own. But the short version is that the revolt broke out simultaneously at all three of the Santa Barbara County missions. Chumash fighters managed to barricade and hold both La Purisima and Santa Barbara, turning both into fortresses, while the mission authorities and Mexican soldiers held Santa Inez. At one point during the revolt, Mexican soldiers and priests fled La Purisima and headed to Santa Inez, while at the same time, Chumash fighters and their families fled Santa Inez and went to La Purisima. The San Andes Valley is large, but not gigantic, and while it is possible that the two parties did not see each other, every time I've driven through the valley, I found myself thinking that there is a fair chance that they did, and that had to have been a strange and tense historical moment. In the end, the Mexican authorities, through a mix of military power and diplomacy, retook the missions and many of the fighters fled to the hills and farther inland into Yokut's territory. At Santa Barbara, the Mexican soldiers killed many of the Chumash people who had stayed in the nearby village, people who had stayed either because they were old or ill, or, in many cases, because they were loyal to the Mexican government, which, yes, means the soldiers killed their own supporters. Raids against inland settlements to bring back those who had taken part in the revolt continued for some time, and often resulted in Mexican soldiers kidnapping people, many of them Yokut, who had played no part in the revolt, and forcing them into the missions. This is a thumbnail sketch of a very complex event, and there is a lot more to it. To give you just a quick taste of the complexity, during the revolt, the soldiers were clearly targets of ire, but in some cases, the priests stayed at the missions with the Chumash fighters and were unharmed. But in other cases, the priests felt the need to flee as well. There was clearly a lot more to this revolt than just the rejection of Mexican rule. There are sources listed in the show notes if you want to read more. Anyway, after the revolt, the missions returned to Mexican control and continued to operate, but they were not the same institutions. The focus of the missions under the Mexican government shifted more towards the mercantile than the creation of Catholic Spanish subjects. There is archaeological evidence from other missions, especially Santa Cruz to the north, that traditional native California crafts, such as bead and ornament making, were allowed under Mexican rule. This suggests less policing of the mission population's activities, even as the demand to keep people at the missions and to, at times forcibly, bring new people in, remained steady or even increased. La Purisima operated until 1834, when it, along with California's other missions, was secularized. Some of them continued to operate as churches, while others were largely abandoned. La Purisima's land passed through the hands of a succession of landowners, most of them ranchers, and the buildings and other facilities fell into a state of disrepair. In the 1840s, as a result of the Mexican-American War, the United States took possession of California. Finally, the land was purchased by the Union Oil Company, which, in turn, donated it to the Landmark Club of California under the condition that the Landmark Club restore the buildings. The Landmark Club tried and failed to raise the money needed to do so, so the title reverted back to Union Oil. In the 1930s, Union Oil worked with the Catholic Church to donate the land to the public, and it eventually became a state park. Many of the buildings, including the mission's impressive chapel, were reconstructed in the 1930s as part of the efforts of the Civilian Conservation Corps. California's colonial era is largely mythologized. The missions are the subjects of both demonization and romanization. Even those who think of themselves as well-informed usually know more myth than fact about this period of California's history. 
Over the years, I have read a number of books on the missions and found that those written before about 1950 tend to portray the priests of the missions as these saintly men who arrive to do good works. If any mistreatment is mentioned, it is usually described as being due to misunderstandings or some other such antiseptic explanation. The soldiers who were stationed in California are rarely mentioned in these sources and then only in passing. Those books written after the 1950s, on the other hand, tend to portray the Spanish in a much less positive light. Specifically, those published after the 1970s focus on the harm done to the native peoples of California by the missions and on the role of the military in carrying out raids that brought people into the missions against their will, as well as discussing mistreatment of the neophytes, again, the native Californians who were brought into the missions by the priests. The thing is, there is both truth and falsehood to both types of accounts. Historians have a set of terms for the two types of mission stories. There's the white legend of Spanish benevolence and the black legend of Spanish evil. To be clear, I'm not saying that the missions were a boon to the native Californians. Looking at the records kept by the Spanish colonists themselves show that this is not true. There is plenty of evidence in both written records and archaeological data that shows that the life of the neophytes was hard and that the presence of the missions and the conversion of large amounts of land to cropland or pastures had a deleterious effect on the hunter-gatherers who had lived there before the Spanish arrived. So I'm not going to get into some sort of weird, well, colonialism was good for the natives type of apologetics here. But what I am saying is that the relationship between the native Californians and the Spanish and Mexicans was complicated. What's more, the Spanish colonists as a group were more than a monolith and consisted of priests, soldiers, and their families and other Spanish colonists, aka Spanish subjects, who had followed the priests and the soldiers to the New World. This is a varied group of people with varying ideas of what life should look like and, importantly, varying ideas about who should be in charge of the colonies. Let's talk about the split among Spanish colonists. The soldiers felt that the colonies were being founded for the Spanish government and that as representatives of the Spanish government, the military should be in charge. Writings by military officials often praise the professionalism and dedication of the soldiers, while also speaking of the malfeasance of the priests, often specifically calling out the mistreatment of the California natives by the priests. Sometimes these stories of mistreatment were exaggerated or even made up, but often they were true. But even when true, they were cherry-picked by military officials with their own agenda. By contrast, the priests considered their mission one of saving souls by bringing people to Christianity, and often wrote of the benevolence of their brothers and the fine treatment of the neophytes at the missions, as well as their desire to, as they saw it, enlighten those outside of the missions with their version of Catholicism. Priests often wrote about soldiers in a way that emphasized their bad behavior, often focusing on the mistreatment of the native Californians. As with the stories by the soldiers about the priests, these accounts were often true, but were also often exaggerated or made up. That the native Californians suffered ill effects of Spanish colonialism is unquestionably true. Again, there are plenty of records and there is plenty of archaeological data that show this. But both the white legend and the black legend of Spanish colonialism are, interestingly, based to a large degree on the record keeping by different factions of Spanish colonists trying to explain why the other faction should not be trusted to be in charge of the colonies. 
To be certain, the mission would have been a miserable place for many of the neophytes due to the physical constraints placed on them by mission life, the probably incomprehensible ritual required by the Padres who ran the mission, and the frequent illness caused by cramped quarters and poor sanitary conditions. The Spanish priests and soldiers likely weren't much happier about those conditions. They were far from home, the military and religious authorities clashed bitterly over who should be responsible for the colonization of California, and violence both among Spanish and between Spanish and the native people of the area was not uncommon. And then, let's talk about the native peoples of California. Their interaction with the Spanish colonists were shaped by what was happening in the world. First, and most obvious, there were the waves of disease moving through California well ahead of the colonists. The records that we have indicate that the newly introduced diseases moved in waves through travel and trade networks, often killing people in populations far away from the colonies themselves. Some of the stories of European explorers in California encountering villages where everyone had died are truly the stuff of nightmares. And this, naturally, was disruptive to the culture of the people experiencing death from the new diseases. Populations were devastated and ways of life had to change. In addition, the period during which the missions were established was one of climatic instability, with a lot of extremes in terms of both drought and rain, which led to instability in the ready supply of both plant and animal foods. This caused further stress on the native cultures. Finally, we come to the issue of the social and political structure of the culture of the Chumash people who lived in the area around La Parisima. While there is a popular perception among most modern, mostly white, Americans that the native Californians lived a peaceful life in paradise before the Europeans arrived and screwed everything up, the truth is very different. The various peoples of California were not, as they are often portrayed in the media, mystical nature spirits here to teach us white people about respecting the land. They were human. That, of course, means that they deserved and continue to deserve the same respect that we would show all other people. But it also means that they suffered from the same flaws as other humans, and that includes violence and warfare. Archaeological data, examination of stories collected by early ethnographers, information written by European explorers and early colonists, and the oral traditions of many native Californians today tell of conflict and cyclical periods of violence, often due to changes in population size, the resource base, or both. Among the Chumash, the threats to one village posed by conflict with another were often resolved through complex alliances that ensured that each village had friends to back them up if warfare broke out. Keep in mind, the Chumash were an ethno-linguistic group, not a tribe, as they are often erroneously called by the lay public. Each village was essentially autonomous, and the villages often fought each other. However, these alliance networks allowed trade between regions and also provided protection from violence. There's evidence that some villages were so important that they served as something akin to proto-capitals of the networks in which they were enmeshed. So this is the setting into which the Spanish colonists introduced the missions. Populations had been reduced by disease, climatic instability had resulted in further stress, and here comes the Spanish who have the most exotic, and therefore valuable, trade goods, and also new and dangerous technology, firearms. When I was in graduate school, the undergraduates I taught were often shocked or scandalized when I would assert that most of the early converts during the mission period converted voluntarily. But that is what happened. And when you understand the various stresses at work and the fact that alliances were how one protected one's home, it made perfect sense to try to ally with the Spanish. 
and the Spanish would take you in as a neophyte if you allied with them. So that is how most of the early converts became neophytes. Now, of course, most of the early converts didn't initially know that the Spanish wouldn't want them to leave once they entered the missions, nor did they understand that Spain establishing colonies was very different from the Chumash Alliance networks. How could they have known when colonization and even the idea of an empire were alien concepts? People who lived near the Aztecs in Mexico or near the Maya in Central America may well have understood these things, as they had already been dealing with imperial powers, but such power structures were simply foreign to California. All of this means that the initial entry of neophytes into the missions was far more complicated than it is typically portrayed. Poor sanitary conditions at the missions led to high rates of death among the neophytes, requiring that new neophytes be brought in. And while they were, also, initially volunteers, over time the soldiers began taking people from villages by force. And as time went on, some neophytes became true believers and loyal Spanish subjects or Mexican citizens, while others sought to run away, which led to more people being brought into the mission against their will rather than being voluntary converts. Well, things did not get less complicated as time went on. As I know that the picture I am painting of the interaction between native Californians and the missions will not meet everybody's expectations, please look into the show notes for this episode posted on the blog entry for the episode. I include the many, many sources from which I gleaned and synthesized information, and I would encourage you to look into them yourself if you want more information. When one considers that the mythology that has risen up around the missions tends to amplify and exaggerate this misery, and the fact that the missions are some of the few recognizably historic landmarks on California's relatively recent constructed landscape, it is no surprise that all of them seem to have a reputation for hauntings. And that, now, brings us back to the ghost stories. La Parisima is often described as the most haunted mission, though, again, I suspect that every mission has at least some number of people who will label it the most haunted, and has been a mecca for many self-styled paranormal investigators. Among these investigators is the late Richard Sinnott, who I find to be a fascinating character. First off, the guy was clearly a good sport, even agreeing to be filmed for the television show Penn and Teller's Bull****, though the segment was ultimately never broadcast. After reading a number of his articles and books, I'm inclined to think that he was an honest person who was really trying his hardest to research something. The problem is that he did so with a methodology that was so sloppy that it was bound to give useless results. For example, in his book, Ghosts of the Haunted Coast, Sinnott describes visiting La Parisima and discovering that there was something strange and powerful in the main chapel. His evidence for this was that people in the group that he brought kept going to the same spot in the chapel and spinning around, as well as reporting cold spots, feeling as if there was a presence nearby, and so on. Each of these was mentioned in the story section. The problem is that he had all of these people in the room together at the same time, so even if they were not speaking with each other, they were seeing each other's behavior and taking cues from one another. He had brought the people in to observe their behavior as an experiment, but he failed to put even the most rudimentary controls on that experiment, such as leading people in one at a time to observe them. This sort of sloppiness permeated his investigations at La Parisima, as well as many of the others he performed elsewhere. Similarly, on his blog, Sinnott described his experience of what he called retrocognition at the mission. I described it earlier, where he thought that he saw past people dressed in raggedy fashion. This again shows some methodological flaws. 
While I have no reason to doubt that he experienced something that he considered to be strange, his dismissal of it being a dream or his imagination due to the people not looking, as he put it, stereotypical enough, seems undermine the fact that he had done research on the mission and much of the writing and artwork available about neophytes at the mission, including material available and on display at the park, present an image of the people at the missions being just as Senate described them in his vision. So he made an admittedly reasonable assumption about what his biases likely were, but he failed to account for materials that he would have inevitably been exposed to that would have worked against those biases. Ultimately, Sinnott demonstrated the right attitudes, experiment, gather data, see if there really is something, but all the wrong methods. Anyone who truly wishes to investigate rather than just sightsee would do well to take a lesson from this. Otherwise, you're more likely to simply reinforce your own preconceived notions than to find anything real. But of course, not everybody who claims to have encountered a spirit at the mission was a paranormal investigator. Most are sharing stories that create or reinforce a particular view of the missions. So let's talk about those other tales. The first thing that strikes me is that, while it's become nearly axiomatic amongst those with an interest in the paranormal, that dramatic events and violence are triggers for the creation of ghosts in the location, I could find no stories that seem to be connected to the revolt of 1824. While there is certainly much discussion about how stories relate to the day-to-day -day life at the missions, both the mundanity and the misery, there is little talk of this one single and violent event. As far as I can tell, none of the ghost stories relate to it, which seems a weird missing piece. I've not yet researched for episodes on the other two Santa Barbara missions, though I may do so at some point, but based on past efforts to find ghost stories about them, I again found nothing about the 1824 revolt, though I may have to revise my statement when I do more research. Nonetheless, that such stories aren't readily available just seems odd, until you consider that the lack of stories related to the revolt also fits with a common, if false, belief among many non-native people in modern California that the people of the state were docile, living in a paradise with no need for violence and therefore no capacity for it, and who were simply subjects without agency during the period of Spanish colonization. This is, of course, very far from the truth. There is no shortage of evidence that the people of California were just as prone to violence and warfare as people from other parts of the world, and that they played an active role in both missionization and in opposition to it. But it is a common belief that I have run across time and again when talking to members of the public about California's history. However, as noted, many ghost stories do relate to the day-to-day -day life at the mission. There are the phantoms that appear at night and seem to be going about their day. There are the voices that are heard speaking, the sightings of Father Pieres and his dogs, visions of soldiers walking or Chumash people working, and so on. This leaves me thinking that most of the stories are about encounters of what people would expect to find. A calm place where the Chumash were de facto servants and Spanish soldiers and priests went about their days. This fits with a vision of the missions as a stately symbol of California's history, a calm but not untroubled history. In this way, these ghost stories seem to work as a way to counter what the Historia Taya Miles recounts for ghost stories about slaves in the American South where the ghost stories are often used to marginalize the experience of slaves by relegating them to weird entertainment for the night times. At La Parisima, the ghost stories seem to reinforce the view of the missions as a site of culture contact that ultimately smoothed the way to modern California. 
tumultuous events such as the 1824 revolt, in which the native Californians took action against those who had done them wrong, simply don't fit neatly into that attitude towards the missions. Even stories that specifically focus on the Chumash people, for example, the frequent statement in the stories that I found that the sound of flutes at the mission is due to the flutes being sacred to the Chumash culture, seem to function as an acknowledgement that the Chumash were present, but does little more than that. So these stories function as a folkloric equivalent of the sculpture End of the Trail by James Earl Fraser, which depicts a Native American man on a horse, bent over and tired. The sculpture represents the idea that, for lack of a better way of putting it, the time of the Indian had passed and that Europeans now ruled the land. While Fraser seemed to see this as a sad event, it was nonetheless a given. Fraser clearly hadn't anticipated the revitalization movements that began in the mid-20th century. But the flutes seem to serve a similar purpose. Flutes, a woodwind instrument, one that we do not think of as being a powerful instrument, but rather one with an ephemeral sound where all that sound ends when the breath of the person playing it vanishes, fits this purpose. There were many instruments, especially percussion, as well as singing, that were part of traditional Chumash rituals, but only the ephemeral fleeting flute is ever heard at La Purissima, it's hard not to see this as being a way of saying a sad but inevitable goodbye to the old ways. Importantly, such stories seem to paint the Chumash and, by extension, other Native Californians as passive people to whom colonization happened, rather than active people who had agency of their own and were quite active, both in the process of making alliances with the Spanish, but also in the process of putting up resistance to the Spanish and Mexican presence. The relatively sedate and passive presence of Chumash ghosts is quite a contradiction for a place that saw direct action in the form of the 1824 revolt. The relegation of these people to the status of passive ghosts is also consistent with a failure to acknowledge that the Chumash people never left. They are still present and have been gaining economic and political power in the Santa Barbara region. Then there are the outlier stories. The first one that I want to discuss quickly is the young girl who heard, as she described it, death chants. I don't really know what to make of that. The sources tell us nothing about the girl other than that her grandfather worked at La Parisima State Park. If she was unfamiliar with Catholic liturgical music, I suppose it could sound like scary chants. If someone were playing a recording, or if there truly were ghosts singing old liturgical music, then I suppose that that might explain what she heard and La Purissima was known for the neophytes singing liturgical music, so sure. Then there are the stories of the priests worshipping the tri-faced god and engaging in evil rituals. Okay, so this one is only found on one website, and the source link that I found on that website led to an Amazon page to buy a novel that, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with La Purissima, and the whole thing seems rather over-the-top and silly. And that's not even the end of the problems with this story, because it says that the priests who still hold Mass at the missions are the ones engaged in this evil practice, except that Mass is not regularly held at La Purissima. Unlike the regular Masses at San Inez and Santa Barbara, Masses at La Purissima are only occasionally held for special occasions. Remember, nowadays it is a state park and not an active church. There is a parish of La Purissima, but it is based on Olive Street in Lompoc, not in the more remote location of the state park, and I feel fairly confident in saying that there are no black-robed cultists wandering around Lompoc. 
Lompok has its problems, but evil cultists are not one of them. Also, the Trifaced God is, in fact, a real thing. But it's not an evil god. It's just a medieval Catholic representation of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is reason to believe that the iconography of the Trifaced God may predate Christianity and may have pagan roots in Europe, but by the time the iconography made it to Europe, it was thoroughly Christian. Additionally, the entry on which I found this story states that everyone in Lompoc knows about this cult, but that they won't talk about it with outsiders. And, well, I lived in Lompoc for a time. No, the people who live in Lompoc do not know about this, and if they don't talk about it with outsiders, then how did the author of the website entry on which I found this tale, who knew little enough about the area that he didn't even know that La Parisima Church was in Lompoc and not at the mission, ever hear about it? Well, actually, I have an idea for how this story came about. I don't know that I am correct, but hear me out because I think that this is plausible. In the final season of the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one of the recurring villains is a priest named Caleb, who has turned to the worship of an evil god. Caleb goes to a mission that is located far enough outside of Sunnydale, the setting for the show and a semi-fictionalized version of the actual city of Santa Barbara, that it requires the characters to drive for at least an hour to get there. The heroes visit the mission where it is discovered that it is home to a powerful magical device, and also that Caleb has killed most of the non-corrupted Catholic priests who live there. Oh, and the same evil entity worshipped by Caleb has a number of servants who wear clothes that appear to be like black versions of the Franciscan priests' habits. So no, it's not quite the story of the evil priest worshipping the tri-faced god, but all the parts are there and just need to be rearranged a little bit. The entry online where I found the story links to the novel The Red Church, which I have not read, but the summary indicates that it is about a haunted and possibly evil church in a small Appalachian town, so I suspect that the author also borrowed from that novel for this tale. Anyway, I have a working hypothesis that the person who wrote this entry was borrowing from pop culture, both via television shows and novels, to create what they felt might be a compelling, scary story about Mission La Purissima. Even though I found it only on one page, where it comes from an anonymous poster, I included it here because we live in a digital world where folklore often springs out of such posts. Think of episode 52 on the Ouija board demon Zozo, where a single post on a ghost story website served as the seed for an increasingly large and sprawling story about the dangers of talking boards. I don't see a reason to think that the story of the followers of the tri-faced god will have a similar spread. It is far too specific to La Parisima and the California missions in its current form, but I would not be surprised if it eventually does become part of the standard ghost lore about the mission. Only time will tell. Similarly, I cite an anonymous entry on the Weird California site regarding phantom mass being heard from the mission chapel. While less ornate than a story of the evil cult of priests, it is nonetheless similar in that it is an unsourced internet tale found at one location, as proven by stories of Zozo, or even the clearly sensationalistic tabloid stories that led to the belief of a cursed painting discussed in episode 45. In the world of ghost stories, even the seemingly irrelevant tales from dubious sources can bloom into larger and more important fixtures of folklore. So it is good to keep an eye on them and see where they lead. One last note. Years ago, I found a video of ghost hunters visiting the mission. The video no longer seems to be online, but I still have my notes. 
According to what I wrote, there was a moment in which the featured two young women tell a spirit that it cannot leave the grounds of the mission, which led me to wonder if the legal prohibitions against taking anything from state or federal lands also applies to supernatural entities. What would the Attorney General say? Can I be prosecuted for stealing a ghost? Inquiring minds want to know. Leaving aside the evil cult and the question of ghost theft, most of the ghost stories at La Parisima seem to serve as reinforcements of the place of the missions as a turning point from pre-European California to what would be thought of as the Old West and then on to modern California. The missions in popular culture are often seen as either the destroyers of the native Californians or the calm before the storm of the time of cowboys, banditos, and railroads. And often, the missions are seen as both of these things at once. Further, while California has been occupied by humans for at least 12,000 years and likely longer, the remains of pre-European occupations are not easily visible to non-archaeologists. As a result, the missions are the earliest visual signs that most people will see of California's history. Missions, like ghost stories, indicate the past, and it is inevitable that the two would converge. The most remarkable things, at least to me, are that these stories don't reveal a complex or contested history. Events such as the Revolt of 1824 are missing, and the Chumash spirits that people claim to see are sometimes sad, sometimes working, but always docile, which reflects a particular view of the past that sits well with common misconceptions, but does not match the documented history. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky! <laughs>